World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. America's Congress will vote today on legislation intended to bring American-listed Chinese companies into line on financial accounting. We examine the risks to those firms, the law's geopolitical dimensions, and what it all means for stateside investors. And disco polo isn't what it sounds like. It's a genre of 1980s Polish music once relegated to rural wedding bandstands. Now it's surging back onto the national scene, and the country's populist leadership is all too happy to dance along to it. But first... Britain's High Court issued a landmark verdict yesterday on the medical treatment of children who want to change sex. It ruled that those under the age of 16 can only be given puberty blockers if they understand the treatment they're facing. Puberty blockers are drugs given to some children with gender dysphoria, temporarily stopping their bodies from developing. I'm delighted at the judgment of the court today. It was a judgment that will protect vulnerable people. I wish it had been made for me before I embarked on the devastating experiment of puberty blockers. My life would be very different today. The case was brought by Kira Bell, a 23-year-old woman, and by the unnamed mother of an autistic teenager who's on the waiting list for treatment. Ms. Bell had been given puberty blockers at the age of 16 by the Tavistock and Portman Trust, which runs Britain's only specialist youth gender identity clinic. She went on to have a double mastectomy before later detransitioning back to a woman. I joined this case with no hesitation, knowing what I knew about what had and has been going on at gender identity clinics. My hope was that outside of the noise of the culture wars, the court would shine a light on this harmful experiment on vulnerable children and young people. Trans rights groups said the ruling will cause uncertainty and distress for young trans and non-binary people. One of those groups, Mermaids, previously said that Kira Bell's experience was comparatively rare. We need to ensure that these minority experiences aren't used to block access to medical support and care that the majority of people need who are trans and or non-binary. The High Court has had to strike a balance between the interests of those two vulnerable populations while under intense scrutiny. This is a hugely important ruling for England and Wales because from yesterday, December the 1st, it stops the Tavistock Clinic from putting trans-identified teenagers onto puberty blockers. Rob Gifford has been reporting for The Economist on transgender youth in Britain and around the world. Over the last financial year, some 2,700 young people have been referred to the Tavistock. And we don't know exactly, but it's thought that somewhere between 40 and 50% of those go on to medically transition. 
The other thing is that this verdict could have big implications for other countries around the world, Canada, Australia, America, where this is also an extremely hot topic. So what exactly did the ruling determine? The ruling is based on this concept of Gillick competence. Victoria Gillick was the subject of a ruling in the 1980s that was about whether children can consent to medical treatment. What the court has said is that that oversight and that checking for competence has not been applied to children with gender dysphoria at the Tavistock and that it must be applied in future. And it lays out eight points in the ruling that a child would have to show that it understands, retains and can weigh up before treatment goes ahead. And these include the fact that the vast majority of patients taking puberty blockers go on to cross-sex hormones. For instance, another thing would be to understand that cross-sex hormones may well lead to a loss of fertility and sexual function. And on top of that, they'd have to understand that the physical consequences of taking puberty blockers are unknown and that the evidence base for this treatment is highly uncertain. But how likely is it that a child will be able to show that level of understanding? The ruling says it's going to be very hard for young people, in fact, in their words, highly unlikely for a 13-year-old and doubtful for a 14- or 15-year-old that they'll be able to understand that. The implication of all this is much closer scrutiny for all decisions surrounding children who want to medically transition, which means that a court order may indeed be necessary for them to do so. And what was Kirabel's role in this? Kirabel said that children cannot possibly understand the long-term implications they will have. She said that no one explored other mental health issues with her, a common complaint, before she was put onto the puberty blockers. Uh, She describes what has happened to her as a result. In the hearing in October, she said, I have no breasts, I have a deep voice, body hair, a beard, affected sexual function, and who knows what else that has not yet been discovered. And her whole argument was saying that there is not enough scientific basis on which to do this and not enough oversight. The Tavistock said that puberty blockers are a safe and reversible treatment, and the court has ruled in favour of Kira Bell. Indeed, the court called it an experimental treatment and said that there was only very limited knowledge of how children will benefit. So what does the research around this suggest, that, that this notion that it's an experimental treatment, that there's not much data? The court ruling was very critical of the Tavistock, saying the judges were surprised at the lack of data collation by the Tavistock. They were surprised that some of the early research from nine years ago into outcomes for gender dysphoric children has still not been published. And so basically, the court found in Kira Bell's favour, she complained that there was too much of an affirmative approach at the Tavistock, whereby a child's diagnosis of their own gender is accepted unquestioningly, and other issues such as trauma, abuse, other mental health problems, or autism, were not explored as causes of their dysphoria. And I've talked to a lot of doctors, social workers, lawyers, and indeed parents, who also expressed similar concerns. I spoke to one paediatrician who said that if you're going to be causing permanent sterility uh, with with body-altering surgery and cross-sex hormones, you'd better have some pretty strong data before you go down that road. What he said was, we're already going down that road, but with no strong data at all. 
But on the other side of the argument has always been the notion that this relieves a great deal of stress and discomfort for young people, and to a degree the ruling closes that down. Well, that's a very important point, and it should not be minimized at all. And there is a big danger, I think, after this ruling, that some of the kids who are very badly dysphoric and really urgently do need serious treatment might get lost in this pushback. And this is the core of the whole issue, is how to balance these two things out, to make sure that children who really need urgent treatment do get the right treatment, but at the same time, people are not waved through into a treatment that they definitely should not be getting. And this ruling has said those decisions are a matter for the courts. I mean, the ruling does continue to raise questions around the liberalist notion of what people can choose for themselves. You say this verdict will be viewed elsewhere. What effect do you think it will have? It's hard to know, but certainly there are other countries who have actually already gone much further than Britain, especially the United States, which is a very different legal system, Canada and Australia. For instance, in Australia now, the family court has stepped out of any of these rulings on stage one, puberty blockers. So it has recently done exactly the opposite of what the court has done here in the UK yesterday. And in Australia, you now have two states that say that psychiatrists are not allowed to give therapy to trans kids because that counts as conversion therapy, trying to change a trans person to be not a trans person. What I think is needed now very much is a much more open, rational, medical and legal debate between both sides, looking at the evidence. And in parallel to that, it has to be said, what trans people and trans identifying kids especially need is a move just for better health care. At the moment, a lot of people feel they're either being ignored or they're being medicalized. And that makes it much easier for them to be used as political pawns in the culture wars. Rob, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Since 2014, more than 170 companies based in mainland China and Hong Kong have listed their shares on American stock exchanges. This year alone, Chinese companies have raised more than $12 billion in their public stock market debuts. Chinese electric car maker Xpeng Motors jumped 41% on its debut in New York. KE Holdings priced its IPO last night above the expected range and is set to raise $2.1 billion. This thing came public at 20 bucks, instantly jumped to 35 and change before closing at $37.44. But trading in one country while based in another is tricky, especially when those countries have often hostile relations. And today, it could get even more complex. America's House of Representatives is due to vote using a fast-track process on the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. 
It's a bill that's almost certain to pass, and it would force Chinese firms to comply with American audit rules, at the risk of being pushed off American exchanges altogether. Earlier today, China's foreign ministry said it opposed any political dimension to securities regulation and called the bill discriminatory. So the bill would require auditors for Chinese companies whose securities are listed on American exchanges to report their audits to an American oversight body. Jan Petrovsky is The Economist's business editor. If the companies and their auditors fail to comply three years running, the companies would be automatically delisted from American exchanges. And so why are these audit investigations, these audits of the auditors, so important? Well, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the oversight body was created after some big accounting scandals in America in the early 2000s, like Enron. And so the idea is to make sure that the auditing is done right. And in fact, American regulators and Chinese regulators have been in discussions to get this sorted out. The Chinese authorities say that this is basically too big an intrusion on their sovereignty. They worry about national security and about state secrets laws. And from the American auditor's side, the idea is to make sure that the finances have been audited properly and that, as a result, the interests of American investors and shareholders are guaranteed. And this seems like a fairly heavy-handed way of going about ensuring this. How, how has this legislation got to this point? This has been in the, in the works for a while, and the problem has been a problem for many years. The immediate spark was the high-profile accounting scandal at, at Lookin Coffee, which is a Chinese rival to Starbucks, which admitted to accounting irregularities this spring. And the bill, quite remarkably, passed the Senate by a vote of 100 to nil, which basically doesn't happen in today's polarized American political climate. So clearly there is bipartisan support. But to your mind, how much of this is really just harmonizing the regulations and how much of it is a means to to limit Chinese companies' access to, to American markets? There's certainly reason to try and get Chinese companies to be more transparent about their finances, but it does appear to be something of an attempt at doing foreign policy by proxy. One of its sponsors, John Kennedy, who's a Republican senator from Louisiana, described its purpose in Congress. They say, we look, we're going to double check your audits. And everybody has to comply with that rule. American companies, British companies, Malaysian companies, Turkmenistan companies, except one, Chinese companies. They just say no. The rules actually hit more than just Chinese companies, the potential delisting rules. Uh, There are some companies in France and Belgium, for instance, whose auditors cannot be audited by the American oversight body, by law of those two countries, by Belgian and French law. But the bill also includes uh, provisions which are specifically aimed at Chinese firms. For instance, they need to disclose any state ownership by the Chinese state, and they also have to disclose whether any directors or senior management of these companies belongs to the Chinese Communist Party. So it it does seem to be aimed squarely at China. And so what will happen to those companies and American shareholders in those companies if the bill becomes law? Well, 
if the bill becomes law and the companies do not comply within three years, the companies would be delisted and therefore access to them by American shareholders would be severely limited, at least on American exchanges. They could still try and get in on the action elsewhere. That's not being ruled out. Perversely, that might actually increase risk for American shareholders because they would have to use other instruments that are not being overseen by American regulators. And the big problem, I think, here is that that would mean that American investors are missing out on some of the hottest stocks around, and they're very fast growing. So this year, the total shareholder returns for US-listed Chinese firms have reached something on the order of 50%, whereas the S&P 500 index of big American companies has risen by under 20%. So when you actually look at the market capitalization of Chinese firms which are listed in America, it's nudging $2 trillion. Of that $2 trillion, Alibaba, which is the Chinese e-commerce giant, is something on the order of $750 billion at the moment. And it has already mused about leaving America. It has a dual listing in, in Hong Kong already. But it certainly would be detrimental to American investors, and it probably would limit access to American exchanges, to many Chinese firms, which still see American exchanges as a great beachhead for global expansion, a great place to access the world's deepest capital markets, and where many of them continue to flock despite all the Sino-American saber-rattling on the geopolitical stage. But if this is unduly heavy-handed, if it does reduce the opportunities for American investors, how, how else to do it? How to bring China in line? Well, one way is for exchanges themselves to introduce tougher listing requirements, for instance, and NASDAQ, the tech-heavy exchange, has already proposed a rule which would basically require firms in what they call restrictive markets, which limit American regulators' access to financial information, to meet higher listing standards, higher underwriting standards. So you could delegate this to exchanges, which are already doing some of these things somewhat less heavy-handedly, and are treating Chinese companies on a case-by-case basis, as opposed to doing the sweeping type of regulation, which may ultimately harm the interest of some American investors. Jan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For plenty more analysis like this, from geopolitics and money to technology and culture, subscribe to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. At the mention of disco, you probably think of the Bee Gees, the OJs, maybe John Travolta in a slick white suit. But it's a different kind of disco that's staying alive in Poland, and it's proving a hit with populist politicians and their supporters. Disco polo is a uniquely Polish genre of dance music. It was created in rural Poland in the 1980s, and it blends upbeat folk tunes with drum machines and synthesizers. Maria Wilczek writes about Poland for The Economist. It was particularly popular in the 80s and 90s, and now they're making a big comeback. It's what's playing when I go to my hairdressers. It's what's on the radio when I jump into a taxi. So it seems it's no longer relegated to wedding bandstands. And so it's popular on radio play or or more widely than that? 
I think it's more popular than that. About two thirds of Poles say they enjoy listening to it. I've seen bands perform at venues as big as Warsaw's uh, Central Palace of Culture and Science. I've even seen concerts at London's O2 Arena. And now actually in eastern Poland, which is the heartland of the music, a school has just launched the country's first class, which will be profiled towards careers in disco polo. Disco polo has resurged in popularity and uh, the ruling party has been capitalizing on these music tastes. Wait, why? What would the politicians have to do with it? Polish politicians have appeased to disco polo listeners uh, for a long time now. As early as in 1995, there was a presidential campaign where both frontrunners were backed by disco polo artists. Alexander or, or Oleg, as we say in Polish, Kwaśniewski, who then became Poland's second democratically elected president, won to the tune of Lucy translating, Oleg, Oleg for president, only you, Ole Oleg today, let's choose future and style. Ole, Ole, Oleg. Those were more subtle flirtations. That was a way of perhaps warming one's image during a campaign. And nothing quite like the institutionalized love love support that's now been extended to these musicians under the Law and Justice Party. A big part of that has been its prominence on public television. The state broadcaster TVP has released a biopic about uh, one of the better known disco polo artists uh, called Zenek Martyniuk. They've also received hefty financial support. Disco polo artists are amongst the largest beneficiaries of a COVID compensation fund for culture, which was unveiled earlier this month. So politicians are kind of on the bandwagon now during the resurgence as they were before. But, but still, why are politicians involved in this at all? The genre's enthusiasts are most numerous amongst the ruling party's core voter base. Peace is a party that wins elections thanks to hearty support in the countryside and small towns. That's where its conservative social values uh, hit home with voters. And it's also where its generous welfare programs are best received. And in the last parliamentary election uh, in 2019, the party gathered roughly twice as high support in these regions. And these happen to be the heartlands of these simple tunes. So it's a sort of salt-of-the-earth approach from politicians aligning with a salt-of-the-earth kind of music. I mean, I, I won't ask you about your political alignment, but what do you make of the music? It's not exactly my cup of tea, but want it or not, I will end up having to listen to it everywhere I go now. Maria, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.